This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it is really my honor to introduce Diane Havler. She is a professor in the Department of Medicine, and she's chief of the Division of HIV-AIDS at San Francisco General. And today we received um, an honor of being ranked number one in the country with... Um, AIDS care and AIDS research by the U.S. News and World Report, and this is, this honor has been happening under Dr. Havler's leadership for the last ten years. Um, she was an active um, resident in training during the beginning of the HIV epidemic. So for over twenty five years, she's uh, watched patients both struggle with HIV and then do much better. She um, is also an active researcher and has um, written and and studied some of the seminal trials on management of opportunistic infections. Most recently, her articles and studies helped define when we start antiretroviral therapy in the setting of concomitant tuberculosis infection. Um, so she plays an active role on the global stage as an author of the first WHO global HIV treatment guidelines. Um, she also, and this is important because she's going to talk about this, she was co-chair last year, or not even last year, just a few months ago in July 2012 for the International AIDS Meeting. Um, and uh, this was, uh, I, I hope that she'll tell you more about it, but this was essentially the first time in 22 years that um, this particular global conference was held uh, in, um, in the United States, and she co-chaired that effort, and really this uh, was hoping to mark the AIDS, the end of the global AIDS epidemic, and she'll tell you more about that. So it's really my privilege to introduce Diane Havler to talk about global HIV. Thank you, and welcome again. It's great to be here and talking about one of my favorite topics, which is um, the, the HIV uh, uh, global epidemic. So this evening, um, these are the topics that I will be addressing, starting um, with some basic epidemiology about the epidemic, um, some of the recent breakthroughs in HIV prevention, um, the challenges we face as we go forward in the HIV epidemic, um, some of the progress um, that we've made, and then innovative approaches that we are taking to um, begin to end the HIV epidemic. So starting with the epidemiology, um, these are the statistics that are a snapshot of the current global epidemic. So maybe just to um, uh, backtrack a little bit, there already have been 60 million people who have been infected with HIV, and unfortunately, 30 million people have already died from the epidemic. It's mind-boggling to me when I have conversations with people and they say, oh, is HIV-AIDS still a problem? Well, I think that this slide and this snapshot of the global epidemic is the clear answer to that question, and it absolutely, most certainly is. We have two and a half still million new infections globally every year. There's 300,000 new infections in children, 1.7 million deaths, and there are 34 million people um, living with HIV right now. 
So this is a slide which shows um, the dynamics of the epidemic um, uh, early on from 1990. And there's a couple of points that I wanted to make from this. If you just look at the red line, it shows this is a number of new infections. And something about the HIV epidemic is that the number of new infections has peaked. This is good news. Um, at the height of the HIV epidemic in the late 1990s, there were over 3 million new infections every year. But that number has been gradually um, decreasing uh, over the last um, 10 years plus. Now, the reasons why it has been decreasing are multifactorial. Uh, they include um, interventions that we've had with prevention. Um, they include the effects that antiretroviral therapy have had on reducing the number of new infections. So at the same time, um, shown in the yellow line, the number of deaths due to HIV has begun to decrease. The decrease in deaths um, came after the decrease in number of new infections, but as you can see, that the number of deaths peaked around 2 million um, and has continued to decrease over time. But despite that, um, and really as a result of some of the successes in HIV medicine, the number of people living with HIV is still um, increasing. And that, of course, is because of a very simple fact, is that when people take HIV therapy, they live longer. So on this slide, you can see the number of people living with HIV in 1990 was estimated to be about 9 million. In 2005, uh, 31 million. And then most recently, um, 34 million. And as people continue to live longer, we do expect this number to um, be slightly to increase. And once again, that is a result of our successes in the epidemic in terms of allowing people to live longer. So one of the most important facts about the HIV epidemic is that it is not uniform around the world. And this is the global map, which shows the prevalence of HIV in various um, parts of the world. And I want to start out by the blue box, because I'm going to come to this a little bit later in the world. Fortunately, we do know the prevalence in almost every single country all around the world. And this would seem to be, of course we would know this, but actually for a lot of diseases we don't. And for various aspects of HIV, we've got a lot of missing pieces of data. But we do have a good sense of, in all the countries around the world, uh, except for a very few, what the prevalence is. And just visually, when you look at this map, you can see where are the infections concentrated, and they are concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa and specifically in the most southern parts of Africa. But you can also see that there are pockets um, of higher prevalence um, in Asia, and uh, uh, in, in India, of course, is a part of Asia, and then also some higher prevalence areas um, in uh, Latin America. So, these are the, this is a list of countries where the number of people 
living with HIV is shown from highest to lowest, and then the prevalence is shown from highest to lowest. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, there's 23 million people living with HIV, and in South Africa per se, that is the country right now in the world where the most people are living with HIV, which is over um, 5 million. The second, the, the country with the second largest burden, which is surprising to some people, is, is Nigeria, which has over um, 3 million people. But if you look to see just in terms of the prevalence, the prevalence of Nigeria is not that high. It's just because of the population of Nigeria is so large that, that, that even this number of people does not make for that high of a prevalence. There are over 2 million cases in India. And then we get to some of the other sub-Saharan African countries, Kenya, Mozambique, uh, Tanzania, and Uganda. Um, Uganda, which has a population about the size of California, has just over uh, 1 million persons living with HIV, very similar to the numbers of people living with HIV in the United States. And then you can see the, the, the list of countries below that. In terms of prevalence, Swaziland, um, a country, a landlocked country in sub-Saharan Africa, um, has just an astounding prevalence of uh, nearly 26 uh, percent. Um, close on its heels is Botswana at 25 percent and Lesotho, and then you can see South Africa weighs in at uh, 17 percent. Then we go um, uh, uh, farther down, and you can see the countries Cameroon and West Africa um, are about 5%. So Dr. Gandhi is going to be talking about this more later in the course, but HIV is definitely uh, a disease that highly affects women. In fact, it's a leading cause of uh, death and disease among women of reproductive age defined as 15 to 49 years worldwide. Um, if you look globally, approximately half of the adults living with HIV worldwide are women. And if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, what you can see is that 60% of the people living with HIV in sub-Saharan Africa are women, about 55% um, in the Caribbean. We know in our own epidemic in the United States and in North America, the percentage of women is less, but nevertheless highly um, significant. Um, uh, with about a quarter of those living with HIV um, uh, women. So there's many factors that have shaped um, the HIV epidemic. We start out with the, the simple uh, fact that the majority of people right now in the world with HIV do not know their status. Um, this was estimated to be, I would say, five to six years ago, somewhere in the 70 to 80 percent range. And it's just a little bit over 50 percent of the people in the world don't know their HIV status. But one can imagine if we're thinking of beginning to end the AIDS epidemic, um, this represents a major hurdle and obstacle that we need to address. On the other side, um, and as reflected in the increase in the number of people who are living with HIV, um, people who do know their status are receiving uh, treatment um, and living longer. In fact, over 8 million people are receiving antiretroviral therapy. Yet, this is, not, um, this is certainly far short of the number of people that, um, by current WHO definitions, are in need of therapy. So still, millions of people um, are lacking HIV services and treatment. And probably one of the most important things when we look at the global um, HIV epidemic it is really a constellation 
of multiple epidemics. And not all communities, regions, or populations are affected in the same way. And I think all of you in this audience are very familiar with the populations most affected by the HIV um, epidemic, where we see concentrated um, epidemics, um, men who have sex with men, um, certainly here in San Francisco, the prevalence in men who have sex with men is approximately 23%, um, sex workers, and uh, people who inject drugs. There's been a, a, a suite of very nice review articles uh, reviewing the literature globally in these highly affected populations in terms of the prevalence. And overall, the, the numbers are really quite astounding, somewhere in the 25 to 30% range of individuals um, that fall in these groups who are living with HIV. Um, when we think about highly affected populations and vulnerable populations living with HIV, of course these include um, uh, women and young people and children. So those are kind of the major points about where we're at and the trends that we're seeing in the, the global um, HIV epidemic. Now what I'd like to move on to is to talk to you about the key scientific advances that have occurred over the last couple of years, which provide the foundation in terms of why um, some of us think that we are now in the stage in HIV where we can talk about um, beginning to end the AIDS epidemic. Um, many of these advances have uh, been uh, featured both in the highest uh, the, the highest level of scientific journals and also in the lay press. I'll be talking about treatment as prevention, what we mean about that and what it could potentially do for the epidemic. Dr. Bacon will be talking about um, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP and I will make a few comments about adult male circumcision. The front page of the journal Science, which is the most competitive and prestigious journal we have in the, the science field, designated treatment as prevention as the breakthrough of the year. So what do we mean exactly about treatment as prevention? Well, the concept is really quite simple. We know that HIV treatment antiretroviral therapy lowers, levels, lowers the levels of HIV in the blood and secretion. We know when that there's lower levels of HIV, this confers a lower risk of HIV transmission. So in other words, the HIV treatment, which is being given to the patients for their own benefit is also participating in interrupting the transmission cycle. So there certainly are several examples where treatment as prevention has been evaluated. And um, the two I'm going to highlight in my talk here are HIV serodiscordant couples where one person is positive HIV, another one is HIV uninfected, and pregnant and nursing women. So this is a cartoon that depicts the very simple principles of what is happening on a population level in the presence or absence of HIV treatment. So on the left hand of the slide, you can see we have no HIV treatment and we have an HIV-infected population. When they come in contact with an HIV-susceptible population, uh, individuals get infected and then they join the pool of the HIV-infected population and this is a, a circle that keeps continuing, expanding the HIV-infected population. When our HIV-infected population uh, is provided treatment, this interrupts this cycle and reduces the number of individuals then that join the HIV-infected pool. 
So this has been, there have been a lot of observations and data, and, and it just seems really extremely biologically plausible that this would be the case if we lower the levels of HIV in the body, there's lower levels in secretion, that it would be more difficult to transmit. But the real question is how, how well does this work um, uh, uh, in humans? So there was a lot of debate uh, in, in the HIV field about how this question is best answered. But when we look at kind of changing the way that we think about things and applying new approaches, the randomized controlled trial remains the gold standard. And the trial that was designed to answer this question definitively was a trial that looked at individuals with in serodiscordant couples. So one of the person was po HIV positive and one of the persons was HIV negative. But of course you would never want to withhold therapy who was HIV infected, who met the indications to start. So this study was conducted in individuals with uh, high CD4 cell counts who were HIV infected, who are, had HIV negative partners. So this was a study that was um, published in New England Journal, which enrolled over a thousand um, couples in four continents, and uh, mostly concentrated in South America, Africa, and in India. And when we do randomized trials and and couples, the HIV-infected person who didn't meet the, quali the qualifications to start therapy had CD4 cell counts. Um, between 350 and 550, um, half of the HIV-infected couples were randomized, so the HIV-infected person got antiretroviral therapy, and the other couples, um, the HIV-infected persons were monitored until their CD4 cell count reached the level that they would, they would start therapy. So as in all clinical trials, there are data safety and monitoring boards that look at the progress of the trials apart from the investigators uh, to ensure that the trial should keep going on. And this trial actually was stopped early. And the reason why this trial was stopped early because the results were so profound. And what this trial showed was that in the couples where the HIV-infected person was receiving antiretroviral therapy, there was a 96% reduction in transmission of HIV. Really just um, amazing. And there were 39 transmission events that were occurred. And um, by sequencing the virus, it could be determined whether these transmissions occurred within the couple or from outside the couple. 20 of these were linked. And 27 of these were in the arm where the HIV-infected person had not got therapy, and only one was in the arm where the HIV-infected person got therapy. So very compelling results. Answered the question, is it true that if you treat a person and they take their therapy and they get viral suppression that you can reduce transmission? And the answer to that question is yes. But this raises um, perhaps an ethical question, and that is, does HIV treatment offer any benefit to HIV-infected persons at high CD4 cell counts? And are we just offering treatment to the HIV-infected person purely for the sake of preventing HIV transmission? Well, this study that I just told you about was also designed to inform us on that question. And the the simple answer to that question 
is it beneficial to the person taking the therapy, is yes. And how do we measure benefit? The way that benefit was measured in this study was progression to AIDS, death, or progression to tuberculosis. And in those individuals who started antiretroviral therapy at these high CD4 cell counts, they had a 40% reduction in these events, which we would all agree are ones that we would certainly want to avoid in HIV disease. As I mentioned, most of the participants in these studies were enrolled in Africa, Asia, and South America. One of the infections was there where there were dramatic protection um, uh, with antiretroviral therapy was tuberculosis. And we're not going to talk about this too much in the course, but HIV and tuberculosis go hand in hand. The immune uh, uh, hit that one gets with HIV makes one particularly susceptible to tuberculosis. There's a 34-fold increased risk for tuberculosis for people not on antiretroviral therapy living with HIV um, in in, in, uh, endemic areas. And 1,000 people actually globally die a day from uh, HIV and TB. TB is the leading cause of death. So this study showing that antiretroviral therapy is a powerful weapon that can prevent cases of tuberculosis was another major finding of this study. We also know from this study it's not just tuberculosis and AIDS and death that was being prevented by early therapy, but also some of the other things that people living with HIV get. Um, shingles, herpes, little changes to the skin, fungal infections. Um, sometimes I feel like to the statisticians, those aren't a big deal, but I could say as a patient provider, those are big things to people, and they do matter, and so the fact that we can also reduce that is very important and improves quality of life. We've known for a long time that um, HIV treatment is also profoundly effective to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV. And in terms of when does mother-to-child transmission of HIV occurred, occurred, when I'm teaching this, I just to make it in rough amounts, typically about a third of the cases, the transmission occurs um, when during pregnancy. About a third occur at delivery, and about a third occur during breastfeeding. Now, over the last decade, uh, the WHO has had a series of strategies to reduce mother-to-child transmission, with the premise being that it's a very complicated time. It's very difficult for pregnant women to take therapy, so let's try to give the minimum amount we need to the pregnant women to protect the child. And they designed a whole kind of series of regimens, which I'm not going to go into the details, just explain to you the principles, called A, B, and B+, with B+, being treating the mom as soon as she presents to care, through pregnancy, during breastfeeding, and then for the rest of her life. And the consequences of when uh, a mom is prescribed the B+, regimen are many. Those include that they keep the mom healthy. As I just told you, they're going to reduce, if her husband is negative or her sexual partner is negative, they're going to reduce transmission to the husband. They're going to permit the woman to breastfeed during pregnancy because we know t- the woman taking antiretroviral therapy during breastfeeding protects the child from HIV transmission, and then also keep her healthy to take care of her kids after the pregnancy. So as you can tell, I've got a little bit of bias, and I've said very publicly that the option B plus should really be option A plus, because it's really the best option for the mother, for the child, and for the family, and I would argue for um, uh, society. So 
Um, we went through a kind of a bad phase in HIV, mother-to-child transmission, where we tried to cut off breastfeeding for women in resource-limited settings. Very bad idea, because what happens, the kids were dying because they were dying of malnutrition. So I think finally we're, we're moving towards global consensus on this, that antiretroviral therapy is the most effective intervention we can do for pregnant women for both the mom and for the child. So just to summarize this part of my talk, HIV treatment as prevention is highly effective, reducing forward transmission by 96%, confers benefit to those who are treated even at high CD4 cell counts, and I would say with a big benefit for prevention of TB, particularly in TB endemic areas, keeps mothers healthy, permits breastfeeding, and reduces transmission to infants. Well, I mentioned that one of the other breakthroughs in prevention over the last couple of years is that um, male circumcision prevents against acquisition uh, of HIV. And we've actually, you can look at countries where there's higher rates of circumcision, there's fantastic epidemiologic data, and there's also randomized trials that tell us that indeed, yes, there's proven efficacy and that there's about a 50 to 60% protection against HIV infection acquisition for males from heterosexual transmission. Um, we've recently learned that this protection appears to be durable, um, at least over the five to 10 year range. This is great news. And also in terms of the feasibility of doing this, um, the, the circumcision studies that have been done have been done both through a, a simple surgical procedure that we do here in the United States, but there's also non-surgical approaches. One of them is uh, uh, shown here, depicted called Preprex. It's a device which is put on the foreskin, which is essentially cuts off the circulation and the foreskin falls off. So this can be done on massive scale, which is what it's being done in Africa now, um, without the requirement of having a surgeon. And if you're interested in this, they have great videos uh, on the web where you can just see how this is done. But it's, it's good news, and the rollout of circumcision is um, occurring uh, across Africa, and particularly Kenya, uh, Kenya is a country that's doing very, very well. So we have now evidence-based prevention, and our evidence-based prevention uh, uh, toolkit is really quite robust. We have, uh, of course, condoms. We have structural and legal things that we can do, counseling and testing, adult male circumcision, antiretroviral treatment, uh, post-exposure prophylaxis um, are really the main tools that we have for combination prevention. So... I've told you that we've had this series of breakthroughs in prevention that are very exciting. So what, what if we apply this new evidence? Um, uh, what could happen? So I, I'm, I think models are useful. I must say I'm a little bit of a cynic on models somehow because it depends what parameters one puts in the model. But this is a model um, published by um, Bernard Schwartlander, who works at UNAIDS in The Lancet. And I thought that the assumptions that were made in these models were quite reasonable. So... Um, what Bernard did was that he did modeling of what we could achieve by if we implemented basic evidence-based program activities, which are shown here, prevention of mother-to-child transmission, condoms, um, efforts with key populations, HIV testing, male circumcision and harm reductions, what we could achieve by uh, 2020. And, and it's remarkable. We could avert 12 million new infections, gain 29 million life's years, and avert 7.5 four million deaths. So 
it's important to ask that question. And I think it's important to ask, what if, what if we do this? And it's also important to ask the question, well, what if we don't do this? What's likely to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that we're going to continue to see the same amount or greater um, numbers of um, infections. If we do what he calls this investment framework, the, no the HIV incidence is going to plummet. The number of HIV deaths is going to plummet. Now, if you look at this from a, uh, a uh, uh, financial standpoint in terms of what investments need to be put up front, we, we do have to put a surge of money um, into this in order to achieve this. But models that have looked at everything that comes out the other end in terms of economic gain and work pro productivity, there's now a consensus among most global economists in the field that this is really the logical approach um, in terms of looking at how we invest our resources. Because um, we're either going to uh, invest now and curtail the epidemic, or as you'll see a little bit later, we're going to um, continue to pay forever. So, Taken collectively, this is very, very good news in the HIV field. We're starting to talk about we can perhaps begin to end the AIDS epidemic. We've had a series of breakthroughs. Um, we've got a strong evidence base for our prevention approaches. And we've got models that tell us that, that we could gain a lot if we were to do this. But we will never be able to really uh, achieve all the gains from these scientific breakthroughs unless we address some of the major challenges that I call the challenges that we've got in the real world. And the first is that massive treatment and upscaling treatment right now uh, requires a functional cascade of care. And what is a cascade of care? This is also a very simple concept. It's the series of events that occurs from a time a person is aware that they have a, uh, a diagnosis until they are stable on treatment. So one can do a cascade of care for diabetes, for hypertension. You can do it for HIV. Um, but um, in 2012, uh, there was some analysis in the United States of, of all the people living with HIV, what percentage of people are actually on ART and achieve viral suppression. And it was a shocking statistic to most people. It's 25%. So here in the United States, we've got resources, we've got medicines, we've got knowledge, we have trained professionals, and we still only had 25% of the people who had suppression. Now, recently, just last week, we just returned from our AIDS meeting. I think this is a little bit of an underestimate, and people are saying this is probably, um, in some areas, more likely 30 to 40%, but still too low. This also has been looked at in Africa, and similarly, if we just look at um, the treatment cascade from testing until staying on antiretroviral therapy, the number is small. So the question is, like, how, why is the cascade leaky? What is broken? Well, so many things are leaky. People get a test, they never get the results. People get referred to a clinic, they never make it to clinic. People get to clinic, they're treated poorly. People can't afford to go to clinic. People go to clinic, they're eligible for ART, somebody loses their medical record. 
people go to clinic, they start on antiretroviral therapy, they have other competing problems in their lives, they stop therapy. I could go on and on and on like this, but there is a very robust research agenda to help us understand the main reasons why the cascade of care is broken. And I do think, like many things in HIV, as we work through this in HIV, it's going to be applied in other diseases, and we'll be able to strengthen, really, the model of chronic care for many diseases. Well, the second challenge and gap in knowledge is um, uh, MSM epidemics. And for many, many reasons, we just um, have not really addressed this epidemic at all fully, and we're only beginning to address it in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. I had mentioned previously that, um, that at least we know HIV prevalence in nearly every country in the world. We don't know in MSM populations around the world what the prevalence of HIV is for reasons that I'm sure people in this room can just, you know, are familiar with, very very much understand. Um, still, it's inconceivable. Still today, today, MSM is criminalized in many countries around the world, and there's absolutely no data, and even collecting these data put people um, at risk. So in this graph, the countries um, shown here um, in the blue are the countries actually where we have data, and the other ones we don't have data. Um, this bar graph shows um, the prevalence of HIV in various countries um, around the world of HIV in MSM. And you can see in the Caribbean, it's 25%. Um, North America, it's about 15%. As I mentioned, in San Francisco here, it's about 23%. So there is no possible way we are going to begin to end the AIDS epidemic until um, we make HIV testing and HIV uh, uh, care care uh, systems available to MSM and overcome some of the uh, terrible political uh, 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 barriers that exist um, around the world. So the third challenge that we face um, is a, uh, a shortage in resources. And we all know we're in a time of economic austerity globally. Um, we have more financial needs in HIV, but there's insufficient funds. The gap that we need um, is estimated to be somewhere in the $7 billion um, range. And on the one hand, this seems like this is an impossible gap to close. Um, but on the other hand, I think that there's some good news. And I want to tell you what I see as some of the good news. First of all is that um, because of actually some of the emerging econ economies in um, Africa, particularly many of the countries right now where um, HIV is very prevalent are classified as low-income countries. But if we look to 2020, the majority of people living with HIV in 2020 are going to be living in um, middle or high-income countries. So this means the countries themselves are going to have the financial resources to better address their epidemic. And countries are stepping up. If I would have given this talk to you three years ago, I would have not said that with confidence, but coming on the heels of the International AIDS Conference, coming on the heels of some new data, um, that um, for the first time, more than 50% of funding for um, non-first world countries are being borne by the countries themselves. 
And this is really a, a, a great statistic. This slide shows some of the different ways that countries are addressing this. Some are using an alcohol levy. Um, there's um, actually an airline levy in African countries. Um, for those of you who have um, been to Africa, there's not a lot of landlines, but everybody has mobile phones, even in the most remote areas. In fact, the cell phone reception is better than Africa than it is in some neighborhoods in San Francisco. So it's a very smart. You know, a tiny amount of money per transaction can generate a lot of money. So this is another way some of the low-income countries now are strategizing to close that gap. So um, if we just say, can we, do we have some evidence for progress? We absolutely do. So let me give you some of these statistics. 13 million people were tested for HIV in South Africa alone in 2010. Globally, 8 million people had access to antiretroviral therapy. And what's probably more important, that's an increase of 20% from 2010. There's been 31 to 55% reduction in new HIV infections among children um, in eight African countries. And in a recent study that was just published by, from South Africa, with an ART coverage greater than 30%, the risk for HIV acquisition was 38% less in South Africa. This is clearly one of my favorite graphs. I'm a data person that, uh, that in one of the publications this year in the journal Science, which looks at adult life expectancy. And this is from um, uh, 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 a region in South Africa. So you can see that the life expectancy in 2000, and this is largely because of the HIV epidemic, was just a little bit over 50. Look at how this has changed. And this is at a population level. So by 2012, over 60 years of age. So this is just great news and shows that the progress we're making is having an impact clearly on the population level. This is a different way to look at these data. Um, but what you can see is the length of life and years of the life expectancy. Bad news, the red line, you know, very, very low in 2003. And we frame shifted it now um, uh, uh, back in 2011. Okay, this probably ties for first place for me, although the, this is a graph that was from 2011. Um, but what this graph shows is the UN has made it a goal to eliminate mother-to-child transmission by 2015. It just seems like, are you kidding me? Could we really achieve that? Well, this graph would say the answer to that question is yes. This shows a trajectory from low and middle-income countries in order the reduction in number of infections that have occurred. And if we keep on this pace we can achieve the goal of eliminating um, HIV uh, infections transmitted through pregnancy and breastfeeding. So now I'm going to just spend the last um, five minutes talking about uh, approach that our group is using with um, our longstanding partners that we work with in East Africa, um, in Uganda and, Ken and uh, Kenya, and um, which we hope is uh, going to be a model of how we can accelerate turning around the HIV epidemic. It's called SEARCH, and the goal of this study is to evaluate health, economic, and education outcomes of treating everyone living with HIV, not just doing CD4-dependent um, uh, uh, ART treatment in Africa. Right now what happens in Africa is people start therapy when their CD4 cell counts uh, fall below 350. And as I was thinking about this project a couple of years ago when we designed it, I, I, I realized something that it was, we could convince ministers of health that it was a good idea to invest in health, but they weren't the ones that we needed to convince, that we needed to convince the ministers of finance 
because they are the ones that are making a lot of the decisions. So when we set up this project, we made it. We have a consortium now that includes economists, and we work with in-country, the ministers of health, the ministers of finance, so we can test, can we get a big return from our investment if we treat everybody? Um, are we measuring in a way that's meaningful to that constituency? So the whole idea of this particular project is we're going from what we call rescue medicine, wait for people to get sick and give them therapy, to find people early, what we're calling the green zone, with high CD4 cell counts, um, treat them and keep them healthy so they never fall down into the red zone, and then we have to rescue them with therapy, what we call rescue medicine. So we're going to be conducting the study um, in East Africa, and we'll be um, randomizing 16 communities of 10,000 persons each to half the communities receive, everyone receives um, HIV treatment who is HIV uninfected, and in the control communities, we... Um, we provide standard of care. So when I talk to people about prospects of ending the AIDS epidemic, I think one of the most important principles, it's never going to happen unless the community decides that it wants to happen. And our work that we're doing in East Africa right now is definitely starting from the ground up. So the first hurdle we needed to overcome was to figure out how to uh, determine the HIV status for everybody li living in the community. So one of our ideas is that we needed to just put HIV in the context of other chronic diseases. So we met with the communities and we asked them, if you were going to have HIV testing, is there something else that you would want? And they told us, they said, oh yeah, we want to know about high blood pressure and diabetes. We're like, oh, we can do that. So what we did and what we're doing now in this big project is that we were doing um, community health campaigns where everybody in the community can come and get testing for chronic disease, including um, HIV. And um, the way we've set this up, it's kind of interesting. In Uganda, weddings are a big event. So we set up a field with the community with big wedding tents, and people walk around um, uh, through the tents, and they get their blood pressure check, they get their weight, we do a rapid HIV test, we do a finger prick viral low, we do a CD4 cell count, we check their blood pressure, we do a finger prick glucose. For kids, we do malaria tests. We can do finger prick malaria tests, and then if they're positive, we can treat them for malaria, and we do deworming, and we give out free bed nets. It's a whole community event, and then people who are diagnosed are referred to the treatment, and the people who are the face of this campaign are the leaders of this community because they're bringing services to the community. So that's our approach of how we can find out and avail people to their HIV status, and then once they do that, we link them to care. And what we've shown in this study is that we can find people early on in disease. Something else that um, also there's a myth about that we're trying to debunk is people who are feeling fine don't want to take HIV therapy. Well, we're doing a study in the same area, and we ask people, do you want to take therapy? And over 95% have said, yes, we do, when we're feeling healthy, and these are the reasons why. We want to keep working. We want to care for our families. We've also looked at the viral load levels on a community um, of the whole populations, two sequential years in one of our community, and what we've shown is the viral load on a community level has just dramatically decreased as we start treating more people. And um, the other thing that we've looked at is working with the economists um, what we've determined is, is that if people keep their CD4 cell counts high, and this is case, and this is there's mostly cattle farmers and subsistence farmers where we're working, that you can work 
nearly one week more per month. This is really, really high if T cells stable above 500. So there's both health, economic, and also kids stay in school, something else that we've shown. So we started out this course talking about the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. What I hope I've done tonight is to show you at least why one person, me, is optimistic that if we apply this new knowledge and if we address some of these major obstacles, we can comfortably say that we truly are at the beginning of the end of AIDS. So thank you. This is prepping for success, and this is an update on pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. This is a very fast-moving field. It's a field that changed last week at the uh, annual conference on retroviruses and uh, opportunistic infections, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the, some of the data that were presented there. Um, first, I want to start with my acknowledgments. I want to uh, first acknowledge the incredible uh, uh, study team for the San Francisco PrEP demonstration project, Al Lu and Stephanie Cohen, who are respectively the uh, uh, principal investigator and the protocol chairs, um, Amy Hilly and Robert Blue, who are study coordinators, um, Nicole Trainer, who keeps us in line with the regulatory authorities, um, and Debbie, uh, Tony, Tamara, Amanda, and Aaron, who are respectively uh, administrative assistants and study clinicians and study counselors who see the majority of the participants. I also I'd like to, to uh, acknowledge Susan Buckbinder, who's uh, chief of the of the what used to be called the HIV Research Division, is now Bridge HIV at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Um, Bob Grant, who is the PI of the uh, original IPREX study, and Annie Lutkemeyer, who's a colleague of mine in the AIDS division, for very helpful and. Um, stimulating conversations about the role of PrEP in HIV prevention and uh, Lene Darbus at CAPS uh, for stimulating conversations about the role of PrEP and couples. So what are we going to talk about today? So the first uh, order of business is why do we need more HIV prevention tools? We have a lot of them. Why more? What is PrEP and what role might it play in preventing new infections? Uh, I'm actually going to drill down and get kind of technical and talk about some of the clinical trial data because I think it's important to familiarize ourselves with what some of the key issues are that have emerged in the clinical trials of pre-exposure prophylaxis and then talk a little bit about the key questions of efficacy, safety, behavior, resistance, and uh, last but not least, in fact, what should be foremost is the question of adherence. Um, and then shift gears to uh, the next stage of PrEP research, which is really implementation research and dissemination. How will PrEP work outside the context of clinical trials in the quote-unquote real world? And then talk a little bit about future directions. So uh, fasten your seatbelts. So why do we need more HIV prevention tools? Well, as uh, Diane has uh, eloquently pointed out, despite effective testing, counseling, condom use and antiretroviral therapy, we still have in this country between 40,000 and 50,000 new cases of HIV infection a year, and the incidence is far, far, far higher in what's been uh, collectively termed as the global south. Um, so this is a slide from the CDC looking at new diagnosis of HIV infection in men who have sex with men by age group between 2006 and 2009. And you can see that even in the, among the ages where the uh, incidence is stable, these are unacceptably high levels of new infections. And over that period of time, rates of infection increased in young men who have sex with men from 13 to 34. Um, 
so clearly uh, we need more prevention interventions. Um, in the United States, uh, uh, MSM and black heterosexuals are really the core groups that are affected by HIV infection. Um, here uh, are white MSM, black MSM, and Hispanic MSM that, that form the bulk of new infections. But I want to highlight the second red box. These are black heterosexual women and black heterosexual men, uh, particularly in the southeast and also in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. These are populations that are extremely affected uh, by this disease and receive less uh, popular press than they deserve. So coming a little closer geographically to where we're sitting right now, this is uh, data from Henry Fisher Raymond in the HIV epidemiology section of the DPH in San Francisco. This is the estimated number of new HIV infections uh, by year from 2006 and 2010. You may see what looks like a decrease in incidence, so the y-axis is number of estimated incident cases and the x-axis is by year. Uh, I just want to point out a, this, is, this decrease is not yet statistically significant. B, it is extremely, however, tantalizing. I'm going to use the pointer now if I can get it to work. To look at this uh, interval of decrease here, although not statistically significant, it is around this time, 2008, 2009, that the word started getting out and largely uh, uh, spearheaded by Diane Havler and others in the division, HIV division that we should be treating everyone with HIV infection, not just people who have a CD4 count of less than 350 or less than 500, that the moment to start therapy is as soon as someone is diagnosed. And this may, this curve may start to reflect uh, the onward benefit of treating everyone who has HIV infection on incidence of new cases. So what are the HIV prevention tools that we currently have? We have testing and counseling. Uh, we have condom use, which in a number of uh, studies, both of heterosexual transmission and uh, transmission among men, somewhere between 60 to 80% efficacy in preventing infection. We have things that people in the community are doing uh, without um, being taught to do. Uh, so serosorting and seropositioning. Serosorting is deciding whom you're going to have sex with, whom you're going to have uh, unprotected sex with based on uh, your own knowledge of your HIV status and what you think about your partner's HIV status. Um, uh, seropositioning is deciding who is going to play what role in a sexual encounter based on uh, who is of what HIV status. We don't have a lot of data on how effective these things are. Um, we have ART as prevention. So as uh, Diane alluded to, the HPTN 052 study, which was done in heterosexual serodiscordant couples, uh, largely in sub-Saharan Africa, that showed a 96% decrease in transmission uh, uh, in people who are on uh, antiretroviral therapy with a suppressed viral load. I would say that the uh, information that treatment is prevention, that antiretroviral therapy uh, uh, reduces risk by 96%, that idea has disseminated out into the community into all risk groups, although we can only hang that 96% figure on serodiscordant heterosexual partnerships, although we all certainly think that there is an enormous benefit conferred uh, in MSM relationships as well. Um, so we have the test and treat intervention, find everyone who's infected, get them all on therapy. We have PEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. We have microbicide research, uh, and now we have PrEP as well. So um, this slide really is all about the statement that it doesn't matter what you have if you don't use it. So um, 
These are, again, uh, data from the uh, epidemiology section of the San Francisco Department of Public Health, looking at percent of MSM in San Francisco reporting unprotected anal intercourse in the last six months. This is the uh, data from the Stop AIDS Project. In the red are HIV negatives. In the green are HIV positives. Um, and you'll see that somewhere between 45 and the mid and 63% of men uh, HIV positive MSM report unprotected uh, anal intercourse over these years. A very large percentage of this uh, of these guys are HIV positive men who are having unprotected sex with other HIV positive men uh, and probably don't reflect any risk for onward transmission of infection. In the red, however, we have HIV-negative men reporting unprotected anal uh, intercourse, 42 to 48%, uh, depending on the year. Uh, and this is an extremely uh, troubling uh, figure. Uh, so we have some prevention interventions that we know work. In this case, let's just say condoms, but not everyone is using them. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit uh, about bio, uh, bio, what I want to call biobehavioral HIV prevention. So uh, I just want to reiterate the fact that um, biological HIV prevention, which is typically used to refer to using drugs to prevent HIV transmission, is also behavioral transmission because if you have pills, if you have microbicides, they don't work if you don't use them. So um, just to, to, to bring everyone up to speed on what the different kinds of biobehavioral bio uh, prevention techniques we have. So uh, uh, Diane talked uh, at length about antiretroviral therapy at, 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 as prevention. So treating people who have HIV with suppressive antiretroviral therapy, we know that reduces risk. Uh, the advantages are that it's reduced infectiousness and there are clear clinical benefits to the person with HIV. The challenges, challenges include that on a global scale, and actually uh, given that only 28% of people in the U.S. are on, who should be, are on antiretroviral therapy, there are problems with scale-up. Um, there are problems with long-term adherence. There may be problems with long-term toxicity, although the drugs are getting better and better and better, more and more potent and less and less toxic. Um, one of the main problems is you have to have known potential source patients. People have to know their status and get into care to take this therapy and prevent onward transmission. We have PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. Okay, This is uh, antiretroviral therapy taken for 28 days immediately after a known exposure to HIV. So within 72 hours of a known exposure, you take typically two medications in one pill for 28 days. And we know that this is quite effective in preventing or aborting HIV infection. Some advantages are that it's a short course. It's 28 days. Challenges are it's very difficult to study. You have to have someone who recognizes his or her risk quickly and gets into care. And I will tell you from personal experience, talking to people on the phone from all over the country, there are not a ton of communities where PEP is available or paid for by public health authorities or people who are at risk know about it. So it can be quite effective, but it is uh, limited in its scope. Um, it's really the target population for PEP is people who are at sporadic risk or have an oops moment. Uh, and I think we can all think of what an oops moment might be. So that brings us to PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So what is that? So it's taking antiretroviral therapy before you're exposed or during a period of increased risk. The advantages are we have, and we'll get into this a little bit later, some demonstrated efficacy numbers. Um, 
PrEP, as it's currently uh, envisaged, is removed from the Sex Act. So you take it when you are presumably thinking more clearly and you're not in this state of altered consciousness that many people enter when they're having sex. Um, the challenges are, and I'm going to highlight this again and again, uh, adherence. You have to be able to adhere to a daily pill. Okay? And if there's one thing that you take away from this talk, it's the importance of adherence to a daily pill. Um, it's costly. Uh, a month of PrEP, as it's currently prescribed, is about 1000 bucks. Who's going to pay for that? Um, there's this idea of risk compensation. If people start taking PrEP, will they actually increase their behavioral risk because they know they're taking a magic pill? Um, there, are, there have been questions about what happens to people on PrEP who do become HIV infected. Do they then, does their virus then uh, evolve to uh, uh, become resistant to the medications included in PrEP? And what are the long-term toxicities and side effects of giving uh, antiretroviral therapy to people who don't have HIV infection? Um, so, uh, and then there's the question of who is PrEP really targeted for? I don't want anyone to walk away from this talk thinking that PrEP is for everyone all the time. PrEP is another method of HIV prevention that is going to work for some people at some point in their lives. And we stress again and again and again that taking PrEP doesn't mean that you abandon all your other HIV prevention strategies. Okay, so what is PrEP in 2013? PrEP right now... Uh, is a combination pill called Truvada or m tenofovir. It's two medications wrapped in one pill taken daily by HIV-uninfected persons during a period of time of increased risk of HIV infection. Okay? Uh, it also includes regular monitoring for HIV infection before you start and while you're taking uh, Truvada and regular monitoring for toxicity. And we're going to talk about uh, ways in which all of those... Uh, all of the ingredients of PrEP were included in the clinical trials and in the current CDC guidance for PrEP for uh, uh, use. So uh, a brief uh, foray into antiretroviral uh, therapy. Why uh, this combination pill of m tenofovir for PrEP? A couple of good reasons. So we know from pre-human studies so that that, that tenofovir and m tenofovir showed effective prevention against a related virus in macaques, uh, either given daily or three days before or two hours after rectal virus application. Uh, these monkeys were successfully protected from, a, from SHIV infection. Uh, long before uh, m tricitabine tenofovir was used for PrEP, uh, it was licensed for treatment of people with uh, uh, HIV in combination with other medications. So there was a lot of uh, experience giving this medication to people uh, and a relatively reassuring safety profile. There are some concerns about long-term renal toxicity in a small percentage of people who take uh, this medication and long-term changes, decreases in bone density, but the vast majority of people who take this medication in combination with others for uh, antiretroviral therapy do extremely well on it. It has a long half-life. Uh, in particularly important in anal sex, it's concentrated in rectal tissues, and it interacts with very few other medications. So it's something that people could take with other medications. So I'm going to now dive into some of the clinical trial data. Um, so these are the phase two and three PrEP studies, randomized controlled trials of uh, 
either tenofovir or emtricitabine tenofovir used for pre-exposure prophylaxis in a number of different populations, in men who have sex with men and transgender women, in heterosexual men and women, in serodiscordant heterosexual couples, and uh, two other studies in heterosexual women. And I'm going to say, I'm not going to go through this grid in detail, but I'm just going to say, if you jump over to the right-hand column, not all of these randomized clinical trials have shown success, and we're going to talk about why. I also want to let you know that this has been studied all over the world, South America, USA, Thailand, South Africa, other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, so let's start with IPREX. So pre-exposure prophylaxis for men who have sex with men and um, transgender women. So IPREX was, and I want, I want you to, to as, don't drown in the data. Okay, I want you to think about a couple of key points as we go through these trials. One is, was this drug safe? Two is, did it effectively prevent HIV transmission? Did people take it? And was there resistance in people who got infected? Okay, so just keep those key questions in mind as we go through the data. So IPREX was a study of about 2,500 HIV-negative uh, adults, uh, largely in the Americas and mostly in South America, uh, randomized to daily emtricitabine uh, tenofovir versus placebo. Everyone in both arms received monthly risk reduction counseling. Um, they were a pretty risky bunch as a clinical trial population. They had a mean of 18 partners and 60% had reported unprotected receptive anal intercourse in the previous 12 weeks before they enrolled. Um, 80% reported unprotected anal intercourse with an HIV-positive or unknown partner. 41% reported transactional sex, commercial sex work. Uh, and 2% had known HIV-positive partners in the previous 24 weeks. So they were tested at baseline with rapid HIV testing, um, and then they were tested at enrollment and at all monthly follow-up visits. Remember, these guys were seen every month. And their plasma was stored so that one could do retrospective RNA testing to look for actual virus if anyone's seroconverted. Does that make sense? That's a key point. So in real time, they got rapid antibody testing, and their, their plasma was stored to look at uh, earliest date of infection using uh, uh, RNA amplification. And the outcomes were safety and efficacy. Okay, so here are the outcomes. So looking at safety first... Uh, there were no significant differences in creatinine elevation. Remember, we're worried about emtricitabine, tenofovir, particularly tenofovir, and its effect on the kidneys. There were no significant differences in creatinine elevation uh, in uh, the treatment group versus the placebo group. There was statistically significant increased nausea and weight loss uh, in the treatment group, and I'll show you the, the, the curves on that. Uh, and a small but significant decrease in bone mineral, mineral density, but no pathological fractures. So overall, this drug was safe for prevention. Adherence. So this is interesting. So you can measure adherence a lot of different ways. You can ask people, did you take your drugs? You can count their pills when they come back for their study visits, and you can look for uh, drug levels in their blood. And actually, you can look for drug levels in their hair, and um, Monica is a specialist. Monica Gandhi is a specialist in looking at drug levels of antiretrovirals in the hair. So if you asked people or counted their pills, 89 to 95% of IPREX participants reported adherence. They took all their pills. If you looked at the people who were in the treatment arm, 
okay? And you designated people who uh, got infected as cases and people who remained uninfected as controls. Drug was actually detected in the blood in 8% of cases and 54% of controls on treatment by pill counter self-report. So adherence correlated with older age uh, if they were uh, at a U.S. site and if they had recently been at risk. So a couple of things there. One is, the bottom line is people will tell you that they're taking their drugs when they may actually not be, and we're going to see this again and again. Um, And if you are recently at risk, you might be more likely to take your pills. Um, So that's the adherence portion of IPREX. Efficacy, did it work? So there were 10 infections, 10 people were actually infected at enrollment. They had a negative antibody test, but subsequent RNA testing of their plasma showed that they actually had acute HIV infection at the time that they started drug. 100 people were infected during the follow-up phase, 36 in the treatment arm and 64 in the placebo arm, for an overall 42 to 44% risk reduction if you looked at all comers, okay? And that was statistically significant. in the treatment group, your protective effect was much higher. There was a 95% risk reduction if you had detectable drug levels, uh, and that was adjusted for recent risk. Okay? So the bottom line here is if you take your meds regularly and you have detectable drug levels and you're a man who has sex with men, it looks like uh, m tenofovir can be highly effective in preventing HIV acquisition. Okay, Um, I'm actually going to speed through this. It's a summary of the adverse events in IPREX, and I just want to point out that there were no significant differences in the treatment group versus the placebo group in their adverse events, including death, elevated creatinine, and confirmed elevated creatinine. So uh, I alluded to the fact that um, there were some increased side effects uh, in the treatment group. So this has uh, popularly been uh, termed the startup syndrome. So early on... Um, people in blue were people on drug, people in red were the placebo group. Early on, there was an increase in nausea and actually other GI side effects, um, diarrhea. That very rapidly diminishes uh, uh, after the first month on uh, m tricidabine tenofovir. Uh, and by uh, 12 weeks, there, these curves merge. Um, so I want to get back to this question of risk compensation. If you're on this drug, do you change, does it change your sexual behavior? Okay. So first of all, the most important thing to say is a randomized controlled trial, placebo-controlled trial, is a terrible way to study risk compensation because to put yourself in the place of someone who's on the, in this trial, you don't know if you're getting a sugar pill or the drug. Okay. Are you going to change your behavior if you don't know if you're actually getting active drug? I don't think so. So... Um, be that as it may, um, there was no statistically significant difference in number of sexual partners in the treatment group, uh, which is in brown, or the placebo group in yellow over time. People started out uh, with the same relatively high number of partners on study entry, and over time, their number of partners dropped, and they dropped both in the placebo group and in the treatment group. Uh, similarly, uh, there was no significant difference in condom use with unprotected in condom use with receptive anal intercourse between the treatment group and the placebo group. So, in IPRAX, at least so far, there's no evidence of risk compensation in people uh, uh, prescribed 
uh, Truvada for PrEP. So I want to talk a little bit about the question of, of resistance and breakthrough infections. So uh, new HIV infections. There, in, the new, in the people who became HIV infected on Truvada, there were no cases of drug resistance. Okay? There were two uh, participants with minor variant drug resistance in the placebo arm. One to one of the drugs in, in one to tenofovir and one to emtricitabine. Interestingly, in those participants who actually had acute HIV infection, antibody negative, RNA uh, positive HIV infection at the time of enrollment, there were two cases of uh, emtricitabine resistance in the treatment arm. Um, so the take-home story here is so far, at least in IPREX, if you were... Um, assigned to the treatment arm, you did not, and you became infected, you did not acquire clinically significant resistance mutations. However, it is absolutely, completely, crucially important to rule out uh, early antibody-negative HIV infection in anyone who's going to start pre-exposure prophylaxis with emtricitabine tenofovir. Um, So, again, take-homes. Reasonably effective... PrEP is reasonably effective in men who have sex with men, 44% overall, much more effective if, uh, if participants are adherent. Um, it's safe and well-tolerated. Risk compensation is rare. Resistance doesn't seem to occur if you're HIV uninfected at the time that you start. However, this is in the context of monthly study visits. No one went for too long uh, without being checked, testing, and counseling. And it's crucial to rule out acute HIV infection before starting. Okay, what about PrEP for heterosexuals? So there have been a number of uh, clinical trials of this, some, effective, some showing efficacy, some showing uh, no efficacy. Um, the main ones have been a study called Partners PrEP, another called TDF2, another called FemPrep, another called VOICE, and there's currently a study in injection drug users in Bangkok using tenofovir. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm going to focus on Partners PrEP uh, and uh, VOICE and I think they're quite representative of, of the overall data for PrEP and heterosexuals. So um, Partners PrEP was a study of almost 5,000 serodiscordant couples in Kenya and Uganda, and they were randomized to daily emtricitabine tenofovir versus tenofovir alone versus placebo. So there were three arms. Um, the HIV-positive partner in uh, uh, Partners PrEP was not eligible for antiretroviral therapy at the time of enrollment. Remember, in many countries, there's a CD4 cutoff for when you're eligible to start antiretroviral therapy. And so to be enrolled as a serodiscordant couple, the infected partner had to be above that threshold. So uh, the positive partner was not on antiretroviral therapy. So there's, there shouldn't be any dilution of the effect uh, by uh, ART as prevention. Um, they were counseled to, however, these uh, positive partners were counseled to start antiretroviral therapy when they were eligible by national guidelines. So again, these participants were also seen monthly. Um, they were all uh, uh, given risk reduction counseling, condoms, and HIV testing. Um, what was the population like? What was their risk profile like? They were married for a median of seven years. They reported about four sex acts in the prior month. 
28% reported unprotected sex in the prior month. And in the infected partners, the viral load was, the median viral load was 3.9 logs. So that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 copies per uh, drop of blood. And we know that the higher your viral load, the higher your likelihood to infect your partner. And certainly a viral load of 10,000 is certainly an infectious uh, viral load. What was their testing strategy in uh, a partner's prep? Very similar. So they were tested with a rapid antibody at screening, at enrollment, and all monthly visits, and they had retrospective RNA analysis of their samples if anyone seroconverted. Um, and the outcomes were safety and efficacy. So what were the results? So um, there are two ways your trial can be stopped by the Data Safety and Monitoring Board. One is if it shows no effect, and the other is if it shows overwhelming effect, and it would be unethical to uh, continue studying uh, the placebo if the treatment is so much better. That's what happened in Partners Prep. So the DSMB stopped Partners Prep because the evidence, the data were overwhelming uh, that uh, being on Prep, whether it was tenofovir alone or tenofovir and amitriptyline, conferred a reduced uh, HIV risk. So. Um, Overall, the efficacy versus uh, placebo is 67% for tenofovir and 75% for emtricetamine tenofovir. There was actually no significant difference uh, between those, whether you're on single drug or dual drug. Um, men and women were protected equally, 63% uh, of men and 71% of women in tenofovir. The, so the efficacy was 63% in men and 71% in women for tenofovir alone, 84% in men and 66% in women for the combination pill, uh, and there was no significant effect of sex on protective effect. Um, so interestingly, if you had detectable drug in the tenofovir arm, your uh, protective effect was 86%. If you had detectable drug in the combination arm, the rate of protection was 90%. Um, so what about those HIV-positive uh, partners uh, the, the, in, in these serodiscordant couples? So over time, 21% of the HIV-positive uh, partners in the serodiscordant couples started ART, and there was no effect on efficacy of PrEP in the uninfected partners when you took those infected partners and their antiretroviral therapy out of the picture. Okay? There was also no, uh, uh, interestingly, no reduced efficacy uh, of uh, PrEP, either tenofovir or tenofovir amtricitabine, if the uh, source partner had a viral load of greater than 50,000 copies. Um, adherence was very high by pill count and also by unannounced home visits. Uh, and adherence was also much higher in partners prep by blood levels. So uh, drug, detected, drug was detected in 82% of non-seroconverters and 31% of seroconverters, and these were randomly selected uh, participants. So there's an important take-home there. Adherence, again, is crucial. Okay. Um, I'm going to go quickly through the safety data. There were no differences in deaths, significant adverse events, um, or uh, creatinine elevations uh, in drug versus placebo arms. There was a slightly increased rate of low white blood cell counts in people on drug. And again, a startup syndrome was observed. Um, the question of resistance in partners prep, uh, again, there were some people who actually had acute HIV infection at the time of enrollment, 14 out of 96 people. Um, <clears throat> again, those people tended to develop some resistance mutations. Okay? Um, 
there was no resistance in anyone who was infected during the follow-up period of the trial. So again, very similar outcomes to IPREX, better efficacy, better adherence. Uh, resistance doesn't seem to be a problem if you're infected on drug. It is a big problem if you are infected before you start drug. So FEMPREP uh, was uh, a study looking at a phase three study of oral amitricidabine tenofovir planned for almost 4,000 high-risk women in Africa. Um, and it was ended prematurely because there was by the DSMB because there was no protective effect of amitricidabine tenofovir. Um, there were 56 new infections, and these were evenly divided between placebo and the treatment arms. So some description of the cohort. These were a higher-risk cohort of women than partner prep. Um, they had more sex acts uh, recently and more partners. They had higher rates of commercial sex work. They had higher rates of STDs at baseline. And we know from the work done in the last 20 years that if you have uh, an active sexually transmitted disease, your risk of HIV acquisition or transmission goes up between three and five-fold. Um, very similar safety profile between the placebo arm and the treatment arm, um, and very, very poor adherence. Uh, so 26% of seroconverters and 35% of non-seroconverters had drug detected at the beginning of their infection window. And similar to these other trials, their self-reported adherence was extremely high in the neighborhood of 90%. Okay. So the, those were the data that were available uh, in July of 2012 when uh, the FDA reviewed trial data and approved the use of emtricitabine tenofovir branded as Truvada for prevention of HIV in individuals who are HIV negative and at high risk of infection uh, and, and who may engage in sexual activity with HIV infected uh, partners, primarily men who have sex with men and women in serodiscordant relationships or otherwise at risk. And the FDA stated that it was to be used daily in combination with other comprehensive, with a comprehensive prevention strategy, including safer sex practices, risk reduction counseling, and regular testing. And that anyone who's to prescribe uh, Truvada for PrEP needs to do careful monitoring for HIV infection and for safety. Um, so a little bit more on that. Uh, what does that mean? So the CDC released additional guidance saying that you have to document a negative HIV antibody test and test for acute HIV infection if someone is symptomatic around the time that they start. You have to confirm that a patient is at substantial ongoing high risk for acquiring HIV infection. This isn't to be prescribed willy-nilly. This is for people who you think, as a provider, are at substantial ongoing risk for HIV infection. You should give no more than three months of drug at a time um, so that there's a, a, a natural uh, uh, sort of tickler for people to come back and be tested. Um, if anyone does become HIV infected while they're on PrEP, they need to be immediately linked to care. Um, the CDC and FDA are very cautious about giving uh, Truvada to uh, pregnant women, although we know from many, 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 many studies uh, in the developing world that antiretroviral therapy is not only safe but extremely effective in uh, pregnant and breastfeeding women. Um, and as far as uh, guidance uh, goes regarding monitoring, the CDC and the FDA recommend every two to three months HIV testing, counseling and condoms, regular STD screening, uh, and regular screening for creatinine elevations. Okay, so that's where we were until last week. 
So last week, the results of voice uh, were released at uh, the CROI meeting. Um, voice was a very, very large uh, placebo-controlled trial of over 5,000 women in South Africa, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. started in 2009. Um, the mean age of these women was young. These were young women, 25 years old, most of them single. They were randomized to... A, seri- a, a number of different uh, biobehavioral prevention interventions. Daily oral tenofovir versus daily oral tenofovir amtricitabine versus placebo, or uh, daily vaginal tenofovir 1% gel versus placebo gel. Every, these women were seen monthly, as in the other clinical trials. Everyone received risk reduction counseling, condoms, STI treatment, and they also received adherence counseling. So the tenofovir alone, oral, the tenofovir oral arm and the gel arms were halted by the DSMB in 2011 because there was no efficacy. The tenofovir emtricitabine versus placebo arms were presented uh, last week and showed no difference in HIV infections. So uh, 61 out of 994 women in the drug arm, or 4.7%, were infected versus 60 out of 1,008 women, or 4.6%, in the placebo arm. Uh, the risk was much higher for unmarried women who are less than 25 years old, 8.8%, which is an astonishing infection rate. Okay? Interestingly, the rates were much lower in married women who are older than 25, 0.8%. Um, there were no safety concerns identified in voice. So what about adherence in voice? As has become a pretty standard observation, self-report and pill counts suggested 90% adherence. Um, the prevalence of detectable blood levels overall in all women in the tenofovir amtricitabine arm was 29%. Okay, so clearly there's this divergence between self-reported adherence and what's measured in the blood. So remember, the infection rate was much higher in young unmarried women, less than 25 years. Uh, the prevalence of detectable blood levels in that group was 21%. The prevalence of detectable blood levels in older women who were married, who also had a much lower infection rate, the, the prevalence of detectable uh, blood levels was much higher. It was 54%. So we can begin to see the same story emerging in all these trials. Okay, The more PrEP you take, the more protected you are. And we are lousy lousy at determining whether someone is adherent or not by talking to them or counting their pills. So to summarize the data so far, PrEP is moderately efficacious in at-risk men who have sex with men, probably highly efficacious in those who take it consistently. And there's been some subsequent analysis uh, that suggests that if you take it every day you're, and you're an MSM, and this is, these are data based on IPREX, Uh, It's probably 99% effective. If you take it four times a week, perhaps it's 95% effective. But I don't want anyone to leave here thinking that all you have to do is take prep, take Truvada four times a week to have it work. These are not actual studies of efficacy. These are imputed numbers based on drug levels that are correlated with with uh, the number of pills that people took. So 
I am in no way suggesting that people should only take their Truvada four times a week. However, there may be on the horizon alternate dosing regimens, and those are being researched. But in any case, in MSM, PrEP is moderately efficacious. The more you take, the more protected you are. The efficacy results in women are very mixed. Uh, uh, Partners PrEP suggests it is extremely effective if you're adherent. Adherence is obviously a major factor. Um, FemPrep and Voice are both very discouraging, discouraging and suggest that tenofovir, at least, or tenofovir and tricitabine uh, for PrEP are not efficacious uh, in, in women, particularly young women, at increased risk of HIV infection. Why is that? Adherence is clearly a critical factor. Are there some other biological factors? Uh, we know that there's differential penetration of uh, particularly tenofovir in cervicovaginal tissues versus rectal tissues, uh, although that wouldn't explain the good results in partner's prep. Um, are there other local tissue phenomena, effect of concurrent STDs, trauma, tissue integrity? We don't know. Is there some effect of the stage of infection in the source partner? We don't know. Um, but crucially, I think uh, one of the next waves of research into PrEP is going to be on how to measure adherence and how to promote adherence. So we know from uh, these clinical trials that there's no increase in risk behavior in people on uh, drugs for PrEP, although this is in the context of blinded use. Um, we know in resistance that it's crucial to rule out HIV infection before starting PrEP, uh, and certainly in the setting of monthly visits and regular counseling, there does not seem to be increased risk of resistance if you are infected while on PrEP. And it appears to be safe and well tolerated. So um, this brings us to implementation questions, the next phase of PrEP studies. How is it going to work outside of the context of a randomized controlled trial? Will it be accepted? Will people adhere? Uh, And what does resistance, safety, uh, and sustainability look like outside of a randomized controlled trial? Uh, To answer these questions, there are a number of PrEP demonstration projects in the United States going on right now in a number of different populations. Um, I'm going to talk about the one that's going on in San Francisco, which is called the PrEP Demo Project. Uh, So this is funded by the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease. It's a demonstration project. It's a multi-site, prospective, open-label study. So it's going on here in San Francisco where our target is 300 men who have sex with men and transgender women. We have a site in Miami looking for 200 uh, participants and recently uh, got word that we're going to open a site in Washington, D.C. looking for 100 participants. It's open-label. Everyone is getting drugged. There's no placebo arm. Um, and people will be offered up to 48 weeks of tenofovir, emtricitabine, or, tenof- or Truvada, as, otherwise known as Truvada, as PrEP. Um, so I'm going to show you what our timeline looks like. People, will be scre- people are being screened for eligibility. Their enrollment visit at w- which they start, uh, Truvada, is approximately two weeks later. They're seen four weeks later for a return visit, and then basically every three months from there on out, up to 48 weeks. Everyone gets HIV testing at all scheduled visits, and in our study, HIV testing consists of a rapid antibody. You can't get a bottle of pills unless you have a rapid antibody, a negative rapid antibody test. We also collect blood for pooled RNA testing and fourth-generation HIV testing, which is a combined antibody-antigen test. So, you know, we know that... Antibody tests alone start to turn positive roughly three weeks after infection. So there's a three, sometimes longer, three weeks, sometimes longer window period at which you can be falsely HIV negative. 
We know that the pooled RNA test shortens that window to about 10 days. Much better test for acute infection. Hard to do, uh, not standardized, expensive, technologically challenging. So we're also looking at the fourth generation test, which has a window period of about two weeks, which is easy to do, automated, and widely available. Uh, as a substitute for, the, for RNA testing for acute HIV infection. So at every study visit, people get a rapid antibody and blood for pooled RNA and fourth gen. Um, they're screened at baseline, at screening, and every three months for sexually transmitted infections and serum creatinine. And we started enrolling at the end of September, and we are very interested in primarily questions of acceptability and adherence uh, and sexual behavior on PrEP. So what is the future PrEP research agenda? People are looking at new agents, um, other antiretrovirals uh, instead of tenofovir or alongside tenofovir uh, for PrEP. Um, People are looking at alternate dosing regimens. It may be hard to take a pill every day. Is it possible to take it before sex and after sex? Uh, We don't know yet. And I, again, no one should leave here thinking that PrEP is a morning before and morning after pill. Right now, if you're going to prescribe PrEP or take PrEP, it is a daily, uh, a, a daily pill. People are looking at other routes of ex- uh, protection against other routes of exposure, primarily uh, infection, uh, injection drug use. Um, other routes of delivery, so vaginal microbicides, vaginal rings, rectal microbicides, all of these vehicles uh, uh, carrying antiretroviral therapy. And particularly, I want to draw your attention to this. So we know that adherence is an enormous problem in taking a pill every day. There are a number of very important studies looking at long-acting injectable antiretroviral agents, Depo-PrEP, essentially. Uh, and there's very encouraging data that was presented last week looking at a particular agent that's an integrase inhibitor that seems to allow for monthly to quarterly uh, dosing. Uh, and these studies have, curr- have, have so far been done in uh, macaques and have not been tested yet in humans. Um, and then, crucially, we need to know how to improve people's adherence. So... We know from voice where people got regular adherence counseling that regular adherence counseling didn't work. Um, Do we need to actually do real-time drug monitoring and let people know what their drug levels are? Would that help? So there's a lot of interest in doing uh, prep therapeutic drug monitoring and feeding that information back in semi-real-time to people taking prep. And uh, we don't have any studies of that yet, but uh, that may be coming down the pike. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.